The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. There's something moving inside. It is the season for the young birds. Higher up, there will be eggs already hatched. Come this way. No more climbing, please. We're starving. Shh. Here. Let us break open the egg. Men don't ask, they take. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, March 30th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing, it's just right. Fade into color. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Two major themes and topics that we'll be taking a look at today. They might seem at first entirely removed from one another, but both have a common denominator that should make each and every one of us sit up and take notice. I was inspired, if that's the proper word given the context, to bring to everyone's attention one of the most articulate literate and informative accounts of what it might look and feel like should our own nations continue down their current collectivist courses. The story appeared under the headline, Don't Let Them Eat Cake, in our local London Free Press, though under other headings in many other newspapers around the world. The problem with the headline, Don't Let Them Eat Cake, I thought, was that it should have read, Don't Let Them Sell Cake, because they weren't stopping anyone from eating it. And that was what the story was really all about. In fact, it's the same story all over again in the second half of today's show when it comes to the issue of cannabis legalization, where the appropriate heading might read, Don't Let Them Sell Pot. When we take a look at recent developments concerning Mark and Jody Emery and what's behind all of the recent pot busts, that'll be in the second half of the program. But first, don't forget... You can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of Just Right's past broadcasts. Well, it's not too often, in fact, it's quite rare that I run across an article in the daily print media that I think is so good that every word of it just has to be shared as a warning of our own possible and closer than we might think future. I thought I'd kick off today's show by doing exactly that. Now this is a picture of every country's present and future that is ruled by socialist or fascist ideas and ideals. And of course that means your country and mine It's a picture of how political and economic collapses are experienced in real life and in real time, and it's happening right now. And for those of you who are familiar with Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, what you're about to hear is a chapter torn right from her prophetic book, except this chapter is not fiction. 
And again, this ran on March 21st in the London Free Press under Don't Let the Meat Cake. And it was written by Fabiola Sanchez, who did a remarkable job on this piece. So here we go, and this is the article. Listen to every word. Quote, Caracas, Venezuela. For the past 25 years after he immigrated penniless to Venezuela from Portugal, Eduardo dos Santos has personally taken care of the loyal clients at Mansions Bakery. But now the downtown Caracas store owner is in the hands of die-hard socialists, and dos Santos is out of a job as a result of the latest attempt by the government to reduce the sprawling food lines that have become the symbol of Venezuela's descent into economic chaos. With cameras rolling, agents from the National Superintendent of Fair Prices raided mansions last week and accused the owners of hoarding scarce sacks of government-imported flour, saying the subsidized goods should have been used to make price-regulated loaves, but instead was turned into more expensive croissants and sweet rolls. The government said it was taking over the shop for 90 days, turning control over to a pro-government neighborhood committee, given the task of distributing bags of staples door-to-door. This group of scoundrels arrived and kicked me out, the 52-year-old Dos Santos said, adding that he feared for his life, recalling the violent way he was expelled from the store where he started off as a lowly sales clerk and which he now manages. One grabbed from me the store's keys and said, get out of here. Within hours of the takeover, new, young, dreadlocked and tattooed shopkeepers took down the mansion's bakery sign outside and hung up photos of President Nicolas Maduro, the late leader Hugo Chavez, and South American independence hero Simon Bolivar. Many of them danced behind the counters to salsa music. (laughs) The only thing missing was the bread. At least when the Associated Press visited the newly renamed Minka Bakery Friday afternoon when the day's supply had already run out. What the government is doing doesn't solve the problems, said Milagros Cabrera, a 57-year-old retiree, who for more than 20 years has been visiting the bakery just two blocks from the presidential palace. Now, she said, she has to walk several miles from her home to pick her daily canilla, a fast-fermenting savory baguette introduced by European bread makers at the height of Venezuela's mid-20th century immigrant boom that has become a beloved staple of the local diet. The goal of what Maduro has taken to calling the bread war is to enforce price controls that have become increasingly unwieldy amid triple-digit inflation and widespread shortages. We'll be talking more about that inflation a little later. As part of spot checks targeting some 700 bakeries, authorities even announced the arrest of two people for illegally making brownies. To earn a profit amid spiraling costs, many business owners try to reduce to a minimum what they sell under a 2014 decree setting prices for many basic goods. The difference in margins can be huge. While a loaf of canilla sells for 250 bolivars, about 28 cents at the lowest official rate, and less than a dime on the black market, unregulated specialty products can fetch 10 times that amount. The same dynamic has been driving sales of fancy yogurts and pre-cooked rice instead of fresh milk and regular rice. Such prices are out of reach for most Venezuelans. 
The most recent survey on living standards by three major universities found that 93% of Venezuelans at the end of last year said they didn't have enough money to buy food, making do instead by skipping meals and eating less. The opposition-controlled National Assembly last week passed a resolution declaring a, quote, humanitarian crisis and creating a commission to investigate government mismanagement of food imports. To boost food supplies, Vice President Tarek al-Assami last week ordered the nation's bakeries to use 90% of their flour to produce canela and French bread. He also ordered every bakery to have bread available for sale by 7 a.m. Owners who refuse will suffer a similar fate to mansions, he said. We're going to distribute bread at a much cheaper price and in larger quantities than before, said Jose Enrico Zano, who heads the Socialist Committee that assumed control of mansions. It's no longer going to be about the exploited and exploiter. No more boss and chief. We're all going to become productive, living and producing in equality. Economists doubt the tough tactics will work. Most blame the problems on price controls that have spread across industries since they were introduced by Chavez more than a decade ago to combat opposition-owned businesses that supported a national strike by trying to force him from office. The government has a monopoly on the importation of most food. But as oil revenues have collapsed, baking industry rep representatives say they are bringing in only about a quarter of the 120,000 metric tons of wheat a month that the country's 10,000 bakeries need to satisfy demand. While the price of a 45 kilogram, which is 100 pounds, uh, a sack of flour is set at 18,000 bolivars, bakers say they frequently have to buy supplies illegally at five times that amount from black market middlemen working for military generals who oversee the food imports. Seeing all this makes me want to cry, Antonio Medina, a 77-year-old retiree born in Spain, said as he stared at the last few remaining cookies in the almost empty display cases at bakeries in eastern Car Caracas where he had shopped for the past four decades. I want to eat a sweet roll, but there aren't any, and what products exist are too expensive, he said. I guess I'll have to settle for coffee. End quote. Wow, what a story. You know, I'm reminded of the book, The Incredible Bread Machine, which came out back in the 1980s or so, which literally explained how the marketplace worked in, and used bread as an example and talked about how bread was baked in a mass assembly kind of way and the complexities and issues involved would boggle the average person. You think, you think that bread just appears on your grocery store shelf just by magic? It doesn't. Now that story I just shared with you provided all of us with a bitter taste of what is to come for those of us living in Ontario and in any other jurisdictions that choose to stay on their current collectivist paths. And it speaks to uh, this question I often get, posed in various ways of asking essentially the same thing, and it might go something like this. You, know, you might have heard this before yourself. So, so where's this big economic collapse you guys on the right keep talking about? You've been warning about this big coming collapse for decades and decades, and we're all still here. Despite our economic problems, we've always had those, but things look bright in the oil sector or some other field of economic enterprise. 
And then they might, you know, cite statistics and, and facts that show promising trends in this or that or the other industry. But otherwise, the we're all still here argument seems to percolate to the top. And the problem is, yeah, we're here, but a lot of people who were here before aren't anymore. And it's amazing how we just write them out of the equation. When economies recover, it's not the same people recovering who had the loss. They might never recover. They might have just been killed, and unnecessarily and unjustly so, if it was caused by government edicts and things of that nature. Just Google Venezuela slash inflation rate and be prepared to consider what you might do if you woke up to what is being seen there. From 1973 to the beginning of 2016, the inflation rate in Venezuela averaged 31.1%. That's every year. Guess what it was as of December 2016? Are you sitting down? 800% accompanied by a 19% GDP shrinkage. Guess what Venezuela's inflation rate is expected to be in 2017? Still sitting down? I think you better lie down for this one. 1,500% and upwards. I'm telling you for the last time, get away from me. Get away from me. Oh, it's the administration that's causing all your problems. Where do you think your inflation comes from? I know where my inflation comes from, from the gas that you give me. <laughs> Neither one is doing a fight, and all I'm doing is talking. And all I'm saying is that I shouldn't be putting on this anniversary party, which I cannot afford. And all I am saying is the reason you are uptight is because, A, your union is about to go on strike. Hold it, hold it. I ain't uptight about that strike. And, B, between the recession and inflation, this administration is taking you to the cleanest. I'll get away. You can't walk away from it, Arch. You've been pinching pennies for months. You've done the one cigar a day, and you are scared stiff about that strike. I ain't scared about that strike. I ain't scared about nothing. You are too scared. You're scared your union's about to go on strike because of the high cost of living that this administration promised to bring down six years ago. <laughs> the only thing that scares me is the high cost of your appetite. You listen to your president, you know that he had the answer to inflation. The country's got to produce more goods. Then we got to have a little more unemployment. So when there's more goods to buy and less people who can afford to buy the goods, then the prices will come down. <laughs> nothing that can't be fixed. <laughs> oh, you smell so good. What is that? Ah, uh, that's Boulet Vue, Ma. Oh. Mm, it's the finest cologne we sell in the store. Oh. I'd buy some myself if we weren't so short on money. Gloria, if you and Mike are ever short on money, you can come to Archie and me. Ah, oh, thanks, Ma, but you know how proud Michael is. Well, he wouldn't take ten cents from you. Oh, we can afford more than that. <laughs> oh, Jesus! Oh, no, I'm yelling because I'm having fun. Oh, well, sit down, honey. 
honey, and I'll get you an ice cube. Oh, ice cubes, yeah, that's good. Michael, you got lots of papers to correct. You shouldn't be doing all these repairs. Who else is going to do it? I'm, I'm the only repairman I can afford. Gee, what a rotten time we're living in. Inflation, recession. I got a weekly salary that lasts four days. Well, my salary holds us over for the other three days, so we're doing okay. Unless we get hit by an eight-day week. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we're barely managing. We're in a trap. Where can a man go to seek his fortune, to get a fresh deal, a, a new roll of the dice, a new spin of the wheel? My gambling ain't never the answer. <laughs> I don't know what the answer is. Got this item from the Australian news, uh, www.news.com.au. Headline, Venezuela in crisis as inflation spirals out of control. And it was accompanied with a photograph, a picture of Venezuelan money. And it was a huge pile, and they put a banana beside it, laying down on its side. And it was probably about six to seven bananas high. And under the picture it read, it looks like enough cash to bankroll a high-flying lifestyle, but this stack of currency is worth a measly $21 in its country of origin. Venezuela has the highest inflation rate in the world, and locals are known for weighing piles of 50 Bolivar notes on scales to avoid the laborious task of counting them. To illustrate the bizarre situation, a Reddit user posted an image of his mother's spare change, and that was the cash that we saw in the picture. And it was interesting that he writes that in 2001, that stack of cash would have been worth 71,000 U.S. dollars. And today, that same stack of cash is worth 21 dollars. While the currency has been volatile for years, continues the article, economic turmoil in Venezuela has pushed it to the brink. The rate of inflation of the Bolivar has written by 50% just in the last month alone, according to a report published Monday by Steve Hankey, an economics professor at John Hopkins University. By the way, this article is dated January 13th of this year. Some experts say the inflation rate could reach 2,000% this year amid a chronic shortage of basic foods, goods, and medicine. A government decree to remove the highest denomination, 100 Bolivar note from circulation last month, prompted looting and rioting resulting in four deaths, as millions of Venezuelans desperate to change over the currency formed long queues at the banks. President Nicolas Maduro, elected after the death of socialist firebrand Hugo Chavez, explained the shock move, which gave citizens just 72 hours notice, by accusing U.S.-backed mafias of conspiring to destabilize his country's economy by hoarding banknotes. <laughs> Isn't that funny? He promised to roll out six new higher denomination notes between 520,000 bolivars and closing the border neighboring Colombia, where Venezuelans have been crossing over to exchange the currency for U.S. dollars to buy essentials. A stay of execution for the old notes was announced after the new ones failed to arrive on time. With the new denominations expected to arrive, the problem was only likely to get worse, Professor Hanke said, uh, dubbing the government's new policy misguided and foolhardy. Boy, are those un understated words. If you go to a market in Caracas today, you either need a wheelbarrow of cash or bigger bills. Much bigger, he wrote in a blog post. 
So President Maduro and the BCV hope that by printing 20,000 Bolivar notes, they can skirt around the hyperinflation problem until it goes away. And that's a mugs game. Meanwhile, Venezuela's opposition politicians this week unsuccessfully sought to trigger early elections by passing a key censure motion against Maduro, accusing him of having effectively abandoned his post by failing to stem the crisis. The opposition blames Maduro for an unprecedented economic crisis, which he has said is part of a U.S.-backed conspiracy against his socialist policies inherited from Chavez. Now, it's a bit difficult to criticize the Venezuelan government in simply economic or political terms. It's a complete moral meltdown. And what's happening in Venezuela and elsewhere when things finally reach that breaking point is not normal. It's not normal. Don't think it's normal. It's not the new normal, which is how people adjust to collapsing situations. Today is the new normal, but it was not normal to what would have existed politically, we're talking about, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But it is a natural consequence of socialism. Socialism, of which fascism is an integral part, is an immoral system of government. And this has been demonstrated over and over again, and yet we keep, we keep voting in those kind of policies because we don't recognize them when we see them. You know, socialism and fascism can't even be regarded as governance. They are rule. Rule by an elite. And is that, is, if that's a little bit how you're feeling about your government, maybe that's the reason. We talked about this whole issue of what it's like to live in a collapsed society. Everybody's waiting for some big Armageddon of some sort. And it may not happen that way. It might be just a whimper and just keep going down. Look at the rest of the world. It's a bit like the frog in the pot phenomenon. We talked about that on the show before. Economic crashes and collapses do not happen overnight, although many... Uh, Many do reach a point where they appear to be happening overnight when something very rapidly changes, that's very visible, which would be happening in Venezuela right now because of the speed and rate at which finally all those years of inflation are catching up with. For the most part, the gradually declining standard of living becomes regarded as the new normal. And current generations have no idea whatever what the old normal was only a few decades before. Never mind what happened early last century or anything that happened before that. History? What's that? You know, in the opening of our show, we played a clip from the movie Sinbad, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, I think it was, and Sinbad's contention that hungry men simply take things is a contention shared by many a poverty activist, but it's less a fact than it is an excuse to justify a moral violation of the commandment that thou shalt not steal. Yeah, people will take things if they're free for the taking, but rarely without another's consent when the thing in question is owned by another. That, I mean, there's a lot of evidence of that. People have starved to death without killing their neighbor because the neighbor was starving to death too. You know, the remarkable evidence, particularly in Depression-era North America when things were pretty bad for a lot of folks, would suggest that when it comes to literal physical hun hunger, that attitude is surprisingly rare. You know, that attitude of just feeling free to take things because of need. Usually the need was met because people didn't take things. <laughs> However, when it comes to people who are hungry for unearned praise or power, well, that's a whole other story. Those kinds of people do take things without asking. 
<laughs> Are you guessing where I'm going with this? <laughs> Unfortunately, amidst all of the criminal types and con artists, too many of them are politicians. Hungry people think in short-range terms and are unable to plan for the long-term future. In the case of politicians, the short-term thinking crisis is brought on by democratic electoral periods. <laughs> in the case of truly hungry people, the short-term thinking crisis is brought on by a threat of immediate starvation and of getting through day, day to day. I don't know if you recall some of the comments by Dr. Jordan Peterson, who of course is a professor who's gotten in a bit of trouble up at the University uh, of Toronto and uh, was in London just a couple weeks ago. We saw him there and we'll certainly be following up on that. But he was talking about the starvation in Russia. And we heard him always warn that no matter how bad you think things can get, it can always get a lot worse. You have to look at these, all of these, these, these poverty-stricken countries and where do they get their poverty-stricken ideas and, and, and moralities from. Go through the Latin American countries and you'll discover that the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope is very popular there and the very Catholic philosophy of altruism and, and economics and politics can be seen being played out in this socialist scenario. The Pope and the Catholic Church have always been opposed to capitalism and freedom, and we've reviewed many a papal encyclical making that abundantly clear on this show. Of course, they're always talking about, about sharing, and as always, the poverty fighters are creating poverty, not alleviating, especially if they're in the political realm, because you can't do good with a gun. That's what, that's what a government is. Government's a gun. If you think it's better to help the poor at the, at the point of a gun than to help the poor at the point of persuasion, offering them jobs, um, getting rid of all of the controls and barriers that stop people from working, well, then I don't know what to think about you. That's not the philosophy I share. Here in London, Ontario, we have a poverty-fighting mayor, quote-unquote, who's also committed to spending half a billion dollars on a rapid transit system that nobody in the city wants except a handful of crony politicians and business people who will directly benefit from the taxpayer scheme. Come on. How obvious can you get? He's fighting poverty? You know, I, I got this article here. Just picked it up. Affordable housing receives major push from the National Post written by Jordan Press on March 23rd, and it reads, Ottawa, cities and affordable housing providers will find themselves with $11.2 billion more to spend on new and existing units over the coming decade as part of the federal government's multi-pronged push to help people find homes. The money, coupled with $2.1 billion for homelessness and initiatives over the next 11 years, sets the financial backbone for the Liberals' promised national housing strategy that will be released in the coming months. And then it goes on and says, The Liberals clearly see a need to attract private investors to help pay for infrastructure projects, including affordable housing, given the federal government's tight fiscal position, end quote. Oh my lord, does that sound just like the article we were just re reading about, you know, from Venezuela? How is that any different? How is that thinking any different? Does he really think that by taking $11 billion from us and then meeting it back to us that he, he, he's accomplished anything? Wealth redistribution is merely a form of legalized theft. Sorry. 
And the reason that a commandment like thou shalt not steal even exists in the Ten Commandments is not because there's a God that will punish us for stealing, but that God is punishing everyone for their immorality by simply allowing the consequences of doing that to run its course. That's what all those good Catholics and in, in Venezuela are doing. You know, if you're looking for a fast trip to hell, just visit Venezuela or just about any other socialist fascist run dictatorship. The taking over of the bakeries is not strictly socialism. It is fascism. Fascism is state control of private property or private choice. It is an integral part of all socialism and socialist thought, as Hitler's Nazi party so eloquently demonstrated in 1930s Germany. All you need to do is replace any of the words associated with bakery as such in the article that we, we, we read and replace them with, say, electricity in Ontario or with Uber in the public transportation debate or with cannabis in the current debate about the upcoming expected legalization and sales of the product, which will be the next topic of our conversation. Maybe Daddy's being on strike is a blessing in disguise. There ain't no blessing in all them bills that gotta be paid. Huh. Remember Daddy saying he thought the strike would be over by the weekend? Oh, yeah, that was three weekends ago. Sometimes I think it'll never end. Oh, Ma, don't worry. You're gonna go out there and knock him dead. You're gonna get a job just like that. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe you're right. Oh, thanks, Gloria. You made me feel better. You see? All it takes is confidence. Hey, who's been reading the New York Times? Me? I've been reading the Help Wanted ads. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't get my hopes up too high, Ma. <laughs> yeah, the way the economy's going, it's not that easy to get a job. Uh, Michael... Well, it's true. Look at me. I've been trying to get a part-time job for three weeks. It's impossible. Michael? And I'm a lot younger than Ma. <laughs> Michael, shut up. You are a drug dealer. Yes, Shane. I grow and sell marijuana. It's organic. It's therapeutic. It's of the earth. Like tomatoes. Yeah. Like tomatoes. Bob, how are you? How you doing, Tom? Well, you're old. Uh, are you still in contact with Mark Emery? Constantly. Okay. Um, and I should point out that Chris Aaron and uh, Chris and Aaron Goodwin and, yeah. and uh, Mark have all been Freedom Party candidates at some time in the past. I interviewed Mark and Chris one year ago in March of this year. Anyone can hear that interview on JustRightMedia.org. And I think what people don't realize about these folks, these are some of the most principled folks you'll ever find in the, in the, in the field of civil disobedience. They play it by the rules. They understand. Wait a second, wait a second, hold on a second. Sorry? Hold on a second. That line is is amazing. They are one, they're, they're uh, principles in the civil disobedience, they play it by the rules. That's right. Hold on a second, that's an incongruence there, it Bob. It seems to be, no, what it okay. means is that they will never use violence, that they will cooperate yep. with the police, if the police arrest them, that they will continue okay. to make political statements. 
And this has been part of the problem with the police dealing with them. And this idea that the law is the law is immoral, if you just accept it at that. That, that justifies everything from Hitler putting away Jews to you name what. Laws must be moral to begin with in order to be respected. So this is a waste because we believe legalization is coming. That this, if no, legalization is not coming. It's not in, even in the plan. And this is what. Oh, so you don't believe legalization is coming either? No, what's coming is a monopolization. It, the government, and you should you should see all the politicians, conservatives and liberals alike, lining up for 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 cannabis futures, buying into a business that they want to keep as a monopoly to themselves. And this has been building over the past few years. Uh, there's an activist named Matt Myrna who has put a list of all the people who we know as, as major politicians who are on this list, they want the monopoly to themselves. And that's why they're putting away the competition. This is no different than the taxi monopoly fighting you Uber. It's exactly the same thing. Interesting, interesting. Uh, because I believe uh, Mark did this as a preemptive business move. Let's get in while, while we can. There's a great brand. He's got a great personal brand with marijuana. And it's the provinces who are going to say, that's our money. Well, that, this 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 is not your business. This is going to be our business. Well, that I don't want. I, I I would like independent entrepreneurs all along the supply chain, from growing to distributing to selling, to be in charge. I don't want the government in charge of anything here. No, I agree with you, and this yeah. is exactly what Mark's trying to do. Mark is establishing a brand that if if you know that if Mark Emery says that this brand of cannabis is good, then you know it's safe, it's good, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to be the, the good housekeeping seal of, of <laughs> marijuana around the world. This so is this is a waste of time, then? Sorry? Waste of time, waste of resources? Yeah, always, there shouldn't, we shouldn't even have drug prohibition. You bust people for doing harm to other people, uh, not necessarily just to themselves, because they do that every day of the week, even on their food diets and the oh, way yeah. they drive and everything. Let's face it. Bob, always a pleasure. Take, Take care. care. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Because after all, that's the whole point of doing all this. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived for your listening enjoyment at your convenience. And be sure to share them. Just to take a quick detour back to a subject we visited a few weeks ago before I continue on with this whole pot situation. And that's fake news, because I just caught myself in what could be called a Donald Trump moment there with Tom McConnell back on March 10th, our conversation you just heard that aired on CKTB AM 610 and on CJBK AM 1290 in Southern Ontario. Although everything I said was true, a couple of the facts were incorrect. And that's the very kind of thing that news fakesters would pounce on if it mattered enough to their given cause. For example, when I said that Mark Emery and I were in constant contact, you know, constantly, I didn't mean to imply we spoke or wrote to each other each and every day. Uh, for the most part, we just keep an eye on each other through social media and then occasionally have an interaction there. In fact, our last direct exchange was just a couple of weeks ago on Facebook over, I think it was an issue of free trade, and I'll say a little more about that later. Also, when I referred to that list of high-profile politicians and bureaucrats getting into the pot business as having been brought to my attention by Matt Murnau, 
I'm afraid I cited the wrong source. It should have been Christopher Lawson, another cannabis activist. Both people in the movement, both folks I know. And finally, when I said that we had interviewed Mark Emery and Chris Goodwin here on Just Right last March, I was wrong there, too. It was in May, and it was specifically on May 5th, 2016. So you see all the errors I made, and yet I I didn't say anything false, just a lot of non-facts. And that's the problem with live radio and talking off the top of your head. But for me, the main thing is to keep the story straight, even if a few facts get sidelined in the effort. So given what we've just heard and reviewed, I thought I'd just take a moment to draw your attention to two or three past broadcasts of Just Right that you can listen to, again, at your convenience online, because they concern this issue and cover a lot of topics and territory that I just don't have time to get into again on this show. We don't want to repeat everything all the time. But going all the way back to November 28, 2013, our show 296, in which we did feature Christopher Goodwin, Aaron Goodwin, Matt Murna, who I mentioned, and Dana Larson, all talking about organizing civil disobedience in a civil way, the very thing we were ta- I was talking to Tom about. And then, of course, if you go back to our show in 404, which broadcast on June 11th, 2015, on Just Right, our guest was Dr. Andrew Bernstein, philosopher, novelist, and radical for capitalism, who, of course, was making his case for ending drug prohibition. And by the way, on Just Right's homepage, you'll see a video thumbnail that, when clicked on, will lead you to Robert Vaughn's 9-minute and 31-second YouTube interview with Andrew Bernstein, The Case for Ending Drug Prohibition, which was recorded June 25th, 2015 in Toronto. And finally, uh, referring again back to that May 5th, 2016 broadcast in which we featured Mark Emery and Chris Goodwin as our in-studio guests. So check those shows out. Pod is supposed to be legal in Canada by July 1st, 2018. CBC, in in an exclusive, announced on March 27th that the Liberal government is announcing legislation that will legalize marijuana in Canada by July 1st. They report that the government says little will change in terms of police crackdowns while marijuana remains illegal, but there will be a push from the city for the province to figure out ideal distribution methods. Toronto Police spokesperson Mark Pugash says the news on marijuana legalization does not change anything for Toronto Police. He says police will keep enforcing the law as it is until that law changes. And then, of course, the big question here in Ontario for we Ontarians is should marijuana be on the LCBO shelves, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario shelves? Kathleen Wynne says LCBO well-suited to sell marijuana when legal. Lisa Campbell, a spokesperson for the Cannabis Friendly Business Association, said the province should opt for a private storefront model that wouldn't sell both alcohol and cannabis. If we're going to be moving seriously towards legalization, not having cannabis in the LCBO is the number one recommendation, she said, end quote. And of course, I agree with her. I think her real message is we shouldn't have any monopolies. That's that's the issue. The following piece appeared on the Cannabis Culture website and was written by Roy Berger, who happens to be someone I have known for many years. And he wrote an article that appeared on March 13th, and he writes... 
Young voters resurrected the Liberal Party during the last election, and part of the deal was marijuana legalization. Yet today, nearly 18 months later, two of the loudest anti-prohibition advocates, Mark and Jody Emery, are facing a possible life sentence for allegedly selling marijuana. Why? Powerful, well-financed, and influential Canadians, many with ties to the governing regime, want to grow dope. They see the rainbow of profit shares and understand that if pressure is applied to the right joints, they can control a billion-dollar market. But they need their government to crush all the competition. Early last week, the marijuana stock market took a hit. Investors were lacking in confidence as dispensaries were popping up in every city over this great land. They had been told this market would be controlled, but the promises from their political servants weren't playing out in the streets. They needed a crackdown to show who's in power. So enter Operation Gator. Attack cannabis culture, imprison the Emerys, and the next day the stock prices rebounded. End quote. I was wondering myself who it was that could be investing in all of these cannabis companies and cannabis future, and Roy lists and associates various names and companies that might be familiar to you. And they also match the list of names that were sent to us by Christopher Lawson. And so clearly there's some connections here. Mike Harcourt, whom he relates to True Leaf Medicine at 23 cents a share. National Green THC at 76 cents a share. Tim Humberstone, AB Can at 239 a share. Modest market capital of $11 million. Sandy Pratt, Emerald Health, capital of $79 million. $1.32 a share. All these companies popping up with politicians all involved with them and people who have connections. Jake Ryan, Ernie Eves, Don Briey, Barry Daniel, keeping wildflower safe at 29 cents a share. And when I look at the other list from Chris Lawson, he has the names Mark Zakulin, Norm Inkster, Dr. Joshua Tepper, Tom Shipley, Mike Harcourt, Cash Heed, Herb Diwali, John Turner, Mr. Belois, Brian Wagner, Tim Humberstone, uh, Ivan Vrana, Sandy Pratt, Shane Morris, George Smitherman, Jake Ryan, Kim Derry, John Reynolds, Senator Larry Campbell, Barry Daniel, Cam Batley, all with some kind of stake coming up in the pod industry. So you can see where all of this is going. I think by now you're starting to see all the dots connecting towards the big picture forming here behind all of the rhetoric about the law is the law, or about the need for the province to figure out ideal distribution methods. Well, let us now turn the clock back about three and a half months ago, prior to Christmas, and prior to their cannabis culture storefront getting raided, as we tune in to December 16th, 2016's CTV coverage of Mark and Jody Emery in Montreal. Welcome to Cannabis Culture in Montreal. Today is historic in that Montreal will see the opening of eight and then ten locations of cannabis culture franchises in this city. We heard the other day the Marijuana Legalization Task Force report recommend that storefronts be allowed that adults be allowed to purchase marijuana in these storefronts, and after more than 20 years of activism, spearheaded by Mark Emery, the Prince of Pot, using civil disobedience to break the law, to change the law, we are choosing to continue expanding the cannabis culture name and brand 
across Canada. We currently have 12 locations throughout British Columbia and Ontario. And now we have come into Montreal, we are opening 10 more. This will mean 22 locations by the end of this year. Next we will go to Ottawa, Calgary, Halifax, cities all across the country. Because every day, Canadians are using marijuana. Nearly half of all Canadians admit to using marijuana. Canadians voted for the Liberal Party because they wanted legalization. They want a model like Amsterdam and Colorado, where you can be a first-class citizen. You can come into a store. You can look at the product like you look at coffee beans or alcohol. You can choose to consume it without a membership, without being sick, without getting permission from the government. Because Canadians are peaceful, non-violent cannabis consumers who deserve open access to cannabis. We do know that this is illegal. But in this country right now, even books and magazines and vaporizers are all illegal under Section 462.2 of the Criminal Code. If the police want to enforce the law in full effect, then Justin Trudeau himself should turn himself in for possession and trafficking of marijuana when he passed a joint. But that would be unfair and wrong, because no one should be arrested for marijuana. And we believe so strongly in this after Mark Emery spent years campaigning, sacrificing, pushing, running for office, going to prison, sacrificing for this cause, it is our responsibility to keep using peaceful civil disobedience to demonstrate why the law is unjust. And this is what legalization looks like. This is what marijuana legalization should be. And I beg the Montreal police, let us be in peace. Please do not cause harm to the harmless people who are choosing to work here and push forward this very important issue. And many Canadians are using very dangerous pharmaceuticals. Opioid crisis is at an all-time high. Alcohol use and abuse causes much harm. Marijuana is the safer choice. We invite adults to come have the safer medicine, the safer recreation, to come to cannabis culture, to support our activism movement, and to ask your politicians and your police to please let these businesses operate. We can offer economic opportunities. We employ local residents. We can give back to the community if we are allowed to operate. So please, police, do not raid, do not arrest, do the right thing and let these peaceful businesses operate as they should so we can demonstrate what legalization looks like. Thank you for coming and listening to me. I am Jody Emery, J-O-D-I-E-E-M-E-R-Y, owner of Cannabis Culture, political activist, and my husband Mark Emery, the Prince of Pot, will say a few words now too. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, Quebec is one of two provinces I have not been arrested in. And uh, so, you know, there's always room for number nine, right? Eight provinces, six United States I've served in prison. I've been locked up in eight provinces. I've been arrested 28 times in Canada for marijuana, and I've seen 34 prisons and jails in all that time. And yet, even after 26 years of this kind of civil disobedience, the law still exists. It's remarkable, the most despicable law that's criminalized and arrested two million Canadians, put hundreds of thousands in prison, including myself on many occasions, uh, that has caused complete disruption of millions of Canadians' lives, 
for not a single legitimate public policy reason. Marijuana prohibition has never been legitimate. There has never been a, a, a reason offered for why this law exists, why it has existed for 50 years. It's a complete abomination. Anybody who enforces this outdated, this despicable law is indeed a despicable person. And I include politicians, elected officials, police authorities, and anyone else who thinks we should be arrested. This is an abhorrent thing to ever advocate that any peaceful and honest lifestyle culture in this country should be targeted with prison and jail and arrest and punishment and fines. It's absurd, it's unjust, and it will not be tolerated, certainly not by me. And am I willing to go to jail? I certainly am. Lock me up if you will. Because this country's history was made by people like me who broke the law transparently, plainly, openly against an injustice. This is how Henry Morgan, Henry Morgan Tolerant made our abortion laws legal this very way. And contraception was made legal this very way. Women got the vote in Canada by going into ballot stations and seizing ballots and being dragged out by force until the public consensus and the lawmakers matched their right to vote. And so I am here because everyone has a right to access marijuana safely, cleanly, and openly like a first-class citizen. And I am delighted to be here to provide that for you. Thank you very much. There is one thing we often hear. People will say it's still illegal. Why don't you wait? Well, we have no patience for injustice. And we have been waiting 50 years for freedom. We have been sacrificing and campaigning for so long. And if the government believes it will be wrong to arrest people two years from now for marijuana, why is it justifiable to arrest people today? Canadians who receive a criminal record for marijuana become second-class citizens. You lose your right to travel. You lose your jobs. You lose your kids, your homes, your scholarships. Marijuana prohibition has criminalized peaceful citizens, and it is only because of law-breaking that marijuana laws have changed in this country. The medical marijuana program that exists came from court orders. That I financed. Mark Emery and activists have broken the law to change the law. And when the government tells us to sit back and be patient while they set up a different system to usurp the industry from those who built it, we say not a chance that the millions of people involved in this culture and the tens of thousands involved in this industry have the right to control this industry as it becomes legal. It is not like the dot-com boom. This industry did not come out of nowhere. People have sacrificed, campaigned, been punished, demonized, persecuted, and all jailed. because of this. All because of prohibition. So it's not fair, it's not just, and if the police choose to raid, or arrest people, you will see that it is men with guns versus peaceful, nonviolent people. Holding flowers. Holding flowers. Cannabis is the safer choice. We invite all Montreal residents to come to the shops over the next week and onward, and hopefully for years to come if we are left alone. Cool. How long you guys been in Mexico? A week. I mean, they did that day. Which one is it? A week or a day? It's a weekday. You got any narcotics or marijuana in here? <coughs> uh, not anymore. 
from a news, uh, a online news item of the same day covering the same event written by Kevin Gold, web reporter. And he writes, pot enthusiasts lined up around the block in the cold temperatures right until the closing time at several newly opened marijuana shops in Montreal on Thursday. Mark Emery has been involved in the marijuana industry for decades, selling smoking paraphernalia and accessories, marijuana magazines and seeds. He's been arrested dozens of times and spent years in a U.S. prison, end quote. Now, I always find it interesting that when today's journalists and writers cite Mark Emery's, quote, long history of activism, end quote, they only really cite his pot activism. And I think that that in some way is a bit harmful to the legalized pot movement since it makes the issue about pot more like a, a self-interested issue, more an issue of it's all about, you know, one guy making money against another, which is an issue, it's part of it, but the real issue is about freedom of trade and it's a bigger issue, much more fundamental. And that's the actual issue that Mark has been fighting currently on the pot front, but that is his history of activism. Mark's history of activism and being jailed for it also includes having brought legalized Sunday shopping to Ontario. By opening his store, City Lights, illegally on a Sunday, Mark found himself tossed in jail for, quote, employing too many people, end quote. And that was the technical charge, thanks to the NDP policy of creating unemployment in the retail sector on Sundays. They didn't want too many people working. They must have thought his store was baking bread or something like that. Mark also led the first anti-BIA business improvement area campaign here in London back in the 1980s and which was not successful but as a consequence of that experience we had dozens of successful quashings of BIA across the province having learned from that one. He also defeated London's bid for the 1991 Pan Am Games which was projected to cost hundreds of millions of tax dollars for the two-week event in London. He also started a newspaper called the London Tribune, which he had hoped would compete with the London Free Press. He also ran unsuccessfully for London City Council, was even a Freedom Party candidate, and I'm, I'm just scratching the surface here. You know, had Mark only been a pod activist alone, I'm not so sure he would ever have been dubbed the Prince of Pot by the National Enquirer, uh, nor become as notoriously known as he is, or feared maybe is more the word I'm looking for, because it was his past record of principled civil disobedience and advocacy, and of course of success, for changing bad laws and for defeating tax-funded white elephants that earned him the power and reputation on which to stand with each passing political effort or campaign. Quite frankly, Mark has done more good for the Canadian electorate in concrete, measurable terms than any politician I know of. And for, and for that, what have we done? Our politicians have harassed him and jailed him simply to protect their crony ways of doing business with taxpayer dollars. Shame on all of them, especially Stephen Harper, for having allowed American authorities to extradite Mark to serve a five-year sentence in an American prison for selling pot seeds in Canada. So when police and you know when when police raid cannabis dispensaries in Canada nowadays, is that really any different from the police raiding bakeries in Venezuela? You see any similarities? I mean, the law is the law, right? If the government says you have to use a specific amount of flour in your bake mix and you do it differently, aren't you just asking for it? That's how people are thinking. 
They do not understand that they have rights and that their rights precede the right of politicians to take the rights away. Let's face it, in these cases, the law is an ass, and its enforcers are a bunch of asses themselves. They're politicians and crony cartels of every type imaginable. I want to close off on a lighter note here. I will do so with a joke that my mother translated for me from a German newsletter from her German-Canadian club. And the joke goes like this. Quote, Dad, what is politics? The son of a well-to-do father asked him one day. His father explained, It's really simple, son. You see, I, I bring the money home, so I'm the capitalist. Your mother manages the money, so she's the government. Your grandfather watches that everything here is in order, so he's the union. Our maid, she's the working class. We all have one thing in common, and that is your well-being. After all, you represent the people. And your little brother, still in diapers, he represents the future. Did you understand that, son? So the son asked his dad to let him think about it for a while and sleep on it. During the night, he was awakened to the screaming of his little brother who had soiled his diapers, but no one was around to help. What to do? He ran to his parents' bedroom, only to find his mother in a very deep sleep from which he could not wake her. He ran to the maid's room, where he saw his father, uh-oh, having some fun with the maid, while Grandpa, uh-oh, was watching through the window. All of them were so busy that no one noticed him, and so he went back to bed. The next morning, when the family was sitting around the breakfast table, the father asked his son once again to explain in his own words what politics is. Well, said the son, the capitalist mistreats the working class, while the union does nothing but observe. The government's asleep, the people are totally ignored, and the future is lying in the crapper. That's politics, end quote. And that, folks, is a humorous expression of how most people arrive at their general understanding of the nature of politics. You know, the problem is, in real life, the government is rarely, quote-unquote, asleep, but only appears to be because it is interventionist in the economy and making things worse. Case in point, just found this article from the March 22nd National Post, Financial Post actually, written by Jack Mintz, M-I-N-T-Z, March 22nd, and he writes out of Canberra, Australia, get this, quote, Australia has joined the club of power market pandemonium created by heavy-handed government intervention. Wholesale electricity prices have doubled, equivalent to a $50 per ton carbon tax. Investment has come up short after Australia decommissioned 10% of its power capacity since 2012. More bad news is expected. Consumers in the populated states will face power shortages for the next seven years, like the recent statewide blackout in South Australia. The Australian government, deluged with complaints about its inaction, hear that? It's inaction, right after he announced that they're intervening, announced on March 16th a proposed plan for a new natural gas power plants and expansion of the Snowy Mountain hydroelectric system a day after the Premier of South Australia proposed its own action plan in response to its own developing energy and political crisis. As in so many other jurisdictions, including Ontario, 
these problems result from inept command and control models, end quote. Well, nothing inept about it. It's, it, it, it's command and control. That doesn't work, period. And, and there they are talking about government intervention, but people are complaining that the government's not doing anything. Wow. The government does and do too much, and that's what we have to stop the government from doing. Because if we don't, we're all going to end up in the crapper like the poor folks in Venezuela. Well, that's it for today. Let's talk again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be So what kind of job are you looking for? Well, something that pays good, but don't need no previous experience. Have you thought about going into politics? <laughs>